Well, I'm happy to be out again tonight and uh, glad to see each and every one that's out tonight and uh, this evening. And we hope that you'll get your Bibles as uh, Luke prayed that you'll examine. It's our responsibility. Whoever's teaching, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, it's the responsibility of everybody that the truth is taught. And if we miss it somewhere, please be a friend to point it out to us as we study from the Word of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 110 is uh, one of the messianic prophecies of the coming of Jesus. It's quite interesting how many times this, this text is quoted in the New Testament, and we'll see some of those times as we study from the Scriptures here. And, uh, but anyway, it's uh, very rich in meaning and lots of good lessons I hope that we can take away as we study the text. Let's just begin by reading the text uh, together. In Psalm 110, beginning verse 1, it says, A Psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule you in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness. From the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so that's the reading of Psalm 110 that we want to look at, the first four verses here, as we talk about this Messianic psalm. Well, if you'll notice in the title, it says a psalm of David. Now, that is not really inspired. That was added by uh, various people. But in this case, we know for sure that it is a psalm of David because Jesus cites it in the book of Matthew chapter 22. And this is kind of interesting as you sort of look at the argument there in Matthew chapter 22. Notice there in verse uh, 41 beginning, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? Well, that was actually pretty easy. They said, well, uh, they said unto him, well, he, he's the son of David. I mean, that's the promise of Second Samuel. It was of the seed of David that would come. Be certainly the seed of Abraham, but also the seed of David, as you read the prophecy there of Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. And he said unto them, how then does David in the spirit? Now, that's talking about inspiration. How could David, by inspiration, by the God's Holy Spirit... Uh, call him Lord, saying, and then he quotes Psalm 110, The Lord, or Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand till I make thy enemies your footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he son? How is he his son? It says in verse 46, And no man was able to answer him a word, neither dared any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now, that's a good question. If David then called him Lord, how's his son? And they could not answer. They couldn't figure it out. They didn't ask questions. Well, could you help explain how that would be? It's really quite easy. He calls him Lord because Jesus had pre-existence before David even existed. You see, Jesus, when he came and was born, it was not the beginning of Jesus, it was the beginning of his body, his, his flesh, and so he was incarnated. He took upon a tabernacle of flesh, is the point. But he pre-existed because he's part of the eternal Godhead. And he humbled himself coming upon this planet to, to be born of the Virgin Mary. So he's the son of David, only in the sense of the physical side of Jesus. But he is David's Lord because he's part of the eternal Godhead. And that's, of course, the explanation. Uh, but they couldn't figure it out and they didn't ask any questions. And they just uh, didn't ask any more, any more questions because, well, 
they got showed up and because of their arrogance and their uh, well their in 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 uh, dishonesty and their inconsistencies of all the questions they asked in chapter 22 and and they were kind of they look look bad and so they just quit asking him but it is a, a great point all right so it says as you go back to Psalm 110 the Lord if you notice that's the capital L O R D that is Jehovah or Yahweh, pretending, uh, uh, depending upon which uh, pronunciation you might take, or maybe even another. Jehovah said unto my Lord, set on my right hand to make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is Lord. A Lord is one who is sovereign, one who has power, who has the power to rule. So we read many times in the scriptures, like he is Lord of lords, and he is king of kings. Uh, we would think of presidents as the one being in uh, kind of the leader of the country. And so he's Lord, he's president, he's king, he's prime minister, various uh, ideas that are used today. But he definitely is sovereign. In the book of Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, there on the day of Pentecost, this text once again is quoted in the New Testament here in Acts chapter 2. As uh, Peter, of course, is the one whose speech is recorded on the day of Pentecost there. And beginning there in verse 33, he says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which he has shed forth, which you now see and hear, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, said unto my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Therefore, here's the conclusion. In the prophecy of Psalm 110, which was a prophecy of the coming of Jesus, Jesus, of course, was fulfilling this prophecy because, yeah, he was killed, but he was buried and resurrected the third day, ascended at the right hand of God. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that is, to firmly, fully, completely believe that God hath made that same Jesus whom you've crucified, both Lord and Christ. So, you killed him. They were, because they were, they were the instigators. You mean, we studied a little bit this morning about Pilate. Pilate was trying, trying to release him. Trying, no, he hadn't done anything. He washed his hands and, oh, it's, a, it's upon you. And they were clamoring for his death and, and clamoring to crucify, crucify. And so they were really the instigators of the death of Jesus Christ. But God raised him from the dead and he is both Lord and Christ. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, notice there in Hebrews the first chapter... In Hebrews chapter 1, the writer talks about angels and how angels are sort of exalted and elevated and what have you there. But in verse 13, he says, But to which of the angels did he say at any time? Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Answer, none. But he did say it about Jesus. And so Jesus has an exalted position because indeed he is Lord, because it was prophesied for him to be Lord. And so he is the sovereign. He's the one that we bow down to. He's the one that we concede to for leadership in all that we do. Then notice as you go back to Psalm 110, it says, Set on my right hand until I make, thy, make your enemies your footstool. Now that's an interesting concept. Your enemies would be your footstool. Subdue all enemies is the idea. Notice back in the book of Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10, interesting text back here. In Joshua chapter 10, they're out conquering the various kings as they're taking over the land of Canaan, as was promised. But notice there in verse 22, Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out the five, those five kings unto me out of the cave. 
And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto them out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of uh, Jarmuth, uh, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near and put your feet upon the necks of these upon these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. Now that's... That's an interesting language. And that's the language of the prophecy of Psalm 110 and other texts that we're going to look at here momentarily, that they put their feet upon the neck. I've got a picture here. Uh, this is uh, an Assyrian relief. A relief means that it was sort of like a carving. It's like three-dimensional. Uh, but anyway, what you have, uh, as you see here, this is the king, uh, maybe Sennacherib. And here's somebody that they conquered, and he's in the prone position. In medicine, they talk about put the patient in the prone position. That is, they're face down, and, and you're prone because, well, you're pretty helpless. And here, this fella, uh, King Sennacherib, he's sort of got his feet upon the neck. And what does that symbolize? Well, complete submission. Complete dominion over this fellow that they conquered. And that's the imagery. And so when it says... I sat on my right hand until I make your enemies their footstool, or to put all enemies under his feet. The idea is to completely con- to conquer and to subdue, and that's the language that is used here in Psalm one ten. Uh, Psalm one ten, and physically, that's what took place, as you see there in uh, Joshua chapter ten, and of course in the picture of the Assyrian relief. Now, notice in the book of First Corinthians chapter fifteen, the language is also used of the power of Jesus over all, and to conquer and to subdue all. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, notice there in verse 24. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24, it says, Then cometh the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, that is, the rule or the domain, dominion, as ruling as Messiah, even the Father, which hath put all things under, uh, put all, uh, hath put down all, th- all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he hath put down all, put all enemies under his feet. Now, what's the point? Well, the idea of being put under his feet again, the total domination of Jesus over all things. It says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Well, Contextually, he's talking about the resurrection. When Jesus comes, the dead will be raised, the living will be translated, as Paul goes on to talk about in chapter 15. You read in uh, Revelation chapter 1, he has the keys of death and Hades. Death, emblematic of the king of terrors. Hades is the realm of disembodied spirits. He has the keys. Well, I have keys. If you take this big fat key, you have authority over the Ford Escape out there. You take this little... Skinny black key, you'd have power over my little pickup truck. And this is over my car. This is a house key. Uh, this is the key to the shed. Well, what, what do keys represent? They represent power and authority. And so Jesus, he has power. He has the keys of death and age. Now, he has not yet exercised. He has dominion, but he has not yet exercised the keys of death and age because he's not raised everybody from the dead. But when he raises everybody from the dead, as Paul says... Uh, he must reign till he put all enemies under feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And so that will come to an end at the return of Jesus Christ, when everybody's raised from the dead, all the living are translated, we're all gathered before the judgment seat of Christ, and then the pronouncement of those who uh, go to heaven, and those, of course, who are consigned to eternal destruction. 
He has all authority. He has all power. Notice as Paul goes on to say there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Where he put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put un, under him, it is manifest that he, that he is accepted, which put all things under him. You remember, Jesus said, all powers given unto me in heaven and earth. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Well, who gave him all this power? Well, that would be the Father. But Paul said, now, it's to be understood that the Father didn't put himself under the Son. Because you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, who is the head of Christ? Well, it's the Father. It's a functional order, a functional subordination. You've got the Father, you've got the Jesus, the Son, under him. Just as you have under Christ, as you have men, under men, you have women. It's, it's a functional order, functional subordination. It doesn't mean that Jesus is any less deity because he is in submission to the Father any more than women are somehow less humanity or human because they're in functional subordination under men. It's just divine order. That's just the way God made things. Verse 28, and when he shall, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And I think the point there is, that is, the Godhead will resume as it was in eternity past before humanity was created. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 makes the same point of this ideal that all his enemies will be uh, under his feet. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, notice that in verse 20. When he wrought, uh, which he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Again, the idea that all things are under his feet. I mean, you can study the life of Christ. He exemplified power over all things. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He demonstrates the power over death. People that were blind, he healed the blind. People that were deathly sick, and he would heal them. He showed power over nature when he fed the multitude with a few loaves and a few fishes. He demonstrated power to storms. That's like, uh, well, I think it was early this morning. I saw some lightning uh, kind of half awake, and I saw some lightning and, and storms. Well, what happens when we see storms? Well, if maybe we're watching the radar, maybe we're watching the Internet, maybe we maybe we got one of these uh, weather alerts, and if it's really severe, maybe we head to the basement or we head to some interior place for security and safety. But Jesus, when he was in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and that not really a good place to be, but here the, the ship was being tossed and waves and all that. He arises and he says, peace be still. He's demonstrated power over, over uh, a storm that was raging. I mean, all things are under his power. He's demonstrated his power and he will fulfill his promise to grant us eternal life because if we're... Alive, or we'll be translated. If we're dead, we'll be raised from the dead and receive that glorified immortal body. All things, uh, see, he has the power to subdue all things under his feet, to subdue all his enemies. Now notice, you go back to Psalm 110, look at verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. That is spiritual Zion, because where is Jesus at? He's in spiritual Zion, which is a reference to heaven, because he's sitting at the right hand of God. Rule you in the midst of your enemies, the rod of your strength. Now, if you go back into the Psalms, in the second Psalm, that language is also used, the rod of his strength. Notice there in Psalm 2, 
in verses 6 and following, Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill. That was in view of the fact of the heathen raging, as it talks about in verse 1. Here are all these people claiming, blah, 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 and they're plotting and planning against Jesus and somehow going to try to undo the plan of God. And God just laughs, the text tells us. Actually, the only place I know that says that God laughed. But he laughed because it kind of tickled him. It'd be like, as an adult human being, you know, here we are in warm weather. I was, I was standing at the back door and these little ants are going back and forth, zipping, zipping back and forth. Could you imagine all these little, I mean tiny ants, not even the big ants, but the little tiny ants, and they're looking at me and saying, hey, we're going to take you down, buddy. I mean, what, what, what would you think? I mean, you kind of laugh. You think, that's crazy, that's silly. I mean, that's, that's kind of dumb to think that you're going to take down an adult male. But that's, that's, I mean, when you think about it here, all these people, they're, they're plotting and planning against Jesus Christ and, and as if somehow they're going to accomplish their goals and God just said, heaven laughing, it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And uh, so it says in view of that, yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. See, they killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. And after showing himself 40 days, he ascended back on high. And there he sits at the right hand of God. I will declare, I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me. Thou art my son, this day I have I begotten. That's quoted several times in reference to his resurrection. Ask of me, and I will give the, the heathen for thy inheritance, the innermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When it talks about the Lord's rod of strength, you don't fight against Jesus. You don't fight against the people of God. It's a losing cause. Anytime anybody sets out to fight against God and God's people, God's plan... They're going to be losers. They're not going to accomplish. They may, they may think they're going to get somewhere. They, they may think that they're, they're going to really do a lot of hurt. But in the end, they will be dealt with very severely with, a, with the rod of his strength. Which is to suggest that they're going to be punished. And so it is as you look through history. You look at the, uh, uh, the, the northern tribes. And what did God do to punish the northern tribes? Well, Isaiah explains that he used the Assyrian nation to judge and to punish the northern tribe. Notice there in Isaiah 10 and verse 5, it says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger is like a parent who is upset with a child who has been disobedient and will not listen, will not mind, will not pay attention, and okay, the rod of correction is being taken. To deal with this disobedient child, to deal with their wrongdoing in a very swift and forceful fashion to bring about correction. Well, here you have Assyrian is like the rod of mine anger. This is God speaking. And the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send them against a hypocritical or a profane nation and against the people of my wrath. Will I give them a charge to take spoil and take prey and to tread down, uh, tread them down like the mire of the street? We have black top, we have concrete. Think back when, you know, that a lot of roads were just simply dirt roads and maybe get rain, there's mud and dust. And he just says, I'm going to tread them down just like the dirt in the street and just grind them to pieces. Is, is the imagery that is being used here. Now notice what it says. Verse, verse 7, How be it he meaneth not so. That is, the Syrians are not thinking, Hey, let's do Jehovah's will and go and punish the northern tribes. No, that's not the mindset of the Assyrians. 
Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither in, neither doth his heart think so, but it is, in, it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. What was the disposition of the Syrians? Conquest, conquer, expand our kingdom, conquer and bring spoils and bring wealth to us. You see, God used the Syrians as a chastening rod. God used various nations and will continue to use nations to bring about judgments upon various peoples. Notice there in the book of Revelation chapter 11, in Revelation chapter 11, number 15. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, it says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the point is, once again, God used the nations to bring about judgment upon Jerusalem. He used the Roman army. He used the Roman empire. They bring about divine judgment, the rod of his strength. Don't fight against God. It's a losing battle. Don't try to, don't try to deceive yourself thinking, well, you know, it'll be different. No, it will not. Anybody that, that sets themselves against the Lord, they're doomed for destruction and ultimately receive the rod of his strength. Now notice as we go back to Psalm 110, in verse 3, your people shall be willing. That's an interesting phrase. Your people shall be willing. You see, God's people that serve God, that God accepts, is people that serve Him willingly. Nobody is forced to serve the Lord. I mean, if somehow you feel like you're being forced and compelled to serve the Lord, well, God didn't accept it. If you notice in the book of Revelation, there's a contrast between the people of God and those who receive the mark of the beast. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3, it says, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. Now, God's servants are sealed in their forehead. What is the point? The point is that we serve God willingly. That is, with our mind, with our intellect. It's like a little child. Now, a little child, you try to appeal to the mind. That is, you appeal to their heart by talking to them. But if a little toddler, before they really grasp the idea of minding mom and dad, especially in a very hectic, very scary situation, well, you may just have to reach over there and grab their hand. And by force, pull them out from getting hit by a car. Okay. But the idea is that when you talk about God's people, or even a child, you, you, you can't grab a, a kid by the forehead and make them do anything. The point is that, that, that you appeal to their mind, you appeal to their intellect, you appeal to their emotions, you appeal to, to, to the person. And the point is that we must serve God willingly. Now, if you notice the contrast with the mark of the beast, it says there in chapter 13 and verse 16, And he causes all, both small and great, uh, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand. Or in their forehead. Now, you had people that would serve the beast and receive the mark of the beast in the forehead. That is, they willingly, they worship the beast. They were idolaters. Sometimes people involved in sin is that they, they just willingly do it, happy to do it. Other times, they're sort of compelled, but they still worship. And so it talks about the mark in their hand. They're sort of compelled to do it, and they sort of give in to fear. You remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When... King Nebuchadnezzar made this great big golden, you know, statue, and he would play music, and everybody was supposed to fall down and worship. Well, some people would do it because they just want to do it. Other people, they just get down. 
You know, maybe I, well, I don't really want to answer my grab and get down. You, you, you want to be throwing the burning fire first. Well, here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're still standing there and all these people are bowed down. They stick out like a sore thumb. Nebuchadnezzar gives them a, gives them a chance. Well, maybe just got a false report. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't worship my idol? And their response was, well, no, because that's idolatry and no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to bow down. And the God that we serve, if he wants to save us, he can, but if not, well, so be it. We will not worship, you see. So they stood up for what was right. But there were people that would fall down and worship the beast. Maybe they're thinking, well, we'll just go through the motions. Thinking, well, no, it's not right. Idolatry is idolatry. You you can't worship a false idol. You can't worship the beast, some uh, the Roman Empire, or whoever it might be. Thinking that, well, it, it'll be okay. And it's not okay. But God's people always serve Him willingly because I, because we want to. Why did grab me behind? Okay, okay. You want to church tonight? No, wasn't like that. Nobody put a gun to my head. Okay, all right. Hey, get in here. Hey, get the get your mouth open. Start singing. Nobody did that. I wasn't compelled. I wasn't forced. I don't think we had anybody putting guns to people's head. All right, sing. We're telling you you got to sing. No, it's not like that. You come because you want to come. You serve because you want to serve. And that's the only kind of service that God will serve. It says your people shall be what they shall be willing in the day of your power. Well, it makes perfect sense. Why? Because Jesus is Lord of Lords. He's King. He knows what's best. He's, he's so smart. He's so intelligent. He's so powerful. You just want to serve him. He's so good. And everything that he does for us is for our benefit. He doesn't tell us things that, that just, uh, just for the sake of telling us. It wasn't like that God and Jesus you know, set up in heaven and the Holy Spirit. Hey, what can we do to like punish these, 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 these wicked sinners after they're converted to, you know, kind of make them, oh, we'll make them go to church. No, it's not like that. He ordained the assembling together. It's for our benefit and our blessing. It's for our good. Everything that God commands us is for our good. He doesn't tell us to avoid uh, drugs and, and, and alcohol and, and non-altering substances. Somehow to punish us, it's for our benefit. He doesn't say, hey, stay away from immorality because, well, because I just don't want... No, it's for our good, it's for our benefit. I mean, you could just go right on down. Everything that God commands us is for our good. So he says, your people shall be willing in the day of your power in the beauty of holiness. There's just beauty in serving God. You talk about holiness, it's just beautiful. Every way you want to look at it, it's just beautiful. People that serve God because they love Him. They're compassionate to those that are in need. Being good Samaritan. You, you read the story of the good Samaritan. Isn't that beautiful? Hey, here's somebody, did, did you even know this guy? He's beat up. He definitely needs help. And here I am. And I, I've got some ability and got opportunity. So he stops to help this guy. Isn't that beautiful? Just out of the very milk of human, human kindness and, and, and compassion in his heart that he stopped to help this fellow that he didn't even know? Of course it is. You look at the story of the prodigal son. You think about this son that went off and wasted all his substance in riotous, wicked living. And yet, when he comes home, the father receives him back with compassion and love and mercy. You look at holiness in every way. It's so beautiful. And you think about wickedness now. You look about the flip side. Paul shows that contrast there in the book of Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, he shows talks about the old man, and he talks about the new man. In the old man, in the old life, well, that's 
kind of ugly. As he describes there in Colossians chapter 3. Notice as Paul talks about there in Colossians 3, beginning verse 5. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, uh, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, in the which also you walked in them sometime, uh, when you lived in them. But now you put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. In contrast to the beauty of holiness is the ugliness of sin. Isn't that, I mean, you see somebody that's just full of anger, ill will, filthy language, just all bent out of shape and talking ugly to people, talking down to people, talking to people like they're dogs. And you see people in such ill behavior, this dirty language, a filthy mouth, and you sometimes think, well, well you eat with that mouth? I mean, all this filth is pouring out. You, you see people involved in all the things that are described here. That, that's a contrast to the beauty of holiness is the ugliness of sin. And then Paul says, beginning in verse 10, he says, And have put on a new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all in all. You see people without prejudice, accepting of anybody that's willing to serve Christ as a brother and sister. I mean, you look at prejudice in the world, and it's that, that's ugly. I mean, here's somebody... Because of the color of skin. Because of their nationality. Because of the language they speak. Because maybe they were, maybe they didn't, they only went to the eighth grade. Maybe they don't have a lot of money. And we like, uh, treat them with disdain because of those, that, those types of things. Is that fair? I mean, is that, is that right? Of course. It's not right. It, it's horrible. It's ugly. When you talk about prejudice and, and, and those types. But those who take on the beauty of holiness, they, they have the spirit of, of uh, uh, without partiality. Put on, therefore, the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so you also do ye. Uh, and above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your heart, to which you are called in the one body, and be ye thankful. I mean, you think about all those qualities. Aren't they beautiful? People that are thankful, people that are humble, People that are compassionate. So that's what this prophesied here. God's people are going to be willing. And they're going to walk in the ways of holiness, not in the ugliness of sin. And then it talks about there in Psalm 110, it talks about uh, from the womb of morning you have the dew of your youth. To me the point is that in Christ Jesus we have rejuvenating power spiritually. We have... We have uh, a source of power that comes upon us. There, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 16, he says, Though the outward man perishes, yet the inward man is renewed every day. I mean, you look at people, you know, you look in the mirror and say, Well, boy, I'm getting older. Oh, look, i got wrinkles. Oh, I, and you see the problem. The outward man is decaying, wearing down, but the inward man is rejuvenated. Day after day after day. Why? Because we tap into the power that comes from God. In the language of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, it says, Hast thou not, uh, hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not? Neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might. He increases strength. 
I mean, have you ever prayed to God? God says, hey, I'm kind of tired. Can you like come back tomorrow and pray? God ever do that? No. He doesn't get tired like we do. I mean, sometimes people ask us, Man, I am so tired. I am dog tired. Well, God doesn't, he doesn't faint. He doesn't, he doesn't get weary. He has boundless power. And he's willing to share this boundless power spiritually uh, for us. Verse 30. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Sometimes you look like you look at the little ones like Tate or other little little toddlers and seem like, man, they've got boundless energy and they just they just never run down, but I can assure you, little ones, they finally get tired and have to give it up. That's what he says. Yeah, even you, they get tired. They get weary. The young men utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. What is the point? That spiritually we tap into the power of Christ. The power of God who has boundless energy. And he uses the illustration of an eagle. And you could use other birds, like buzzards. They're kind of ugly, but, but they're pretty. I think they're majestic as they fly. And here they are, just sailing up there in the sky. How is it like, you look at robins, you look at sparrows, and boy, they're flapping their wings, and hummingbirds, they're really flapping their wings in order to stay, you know, fly around. But here are the eagles, buzzards, other birds that just soar. How is it that they soar without flapping their wings all the time? And the answer is they tap into the power of the sun because the sun heats the air. And when air gets hot... In physics, hot air rises, cold air goes down. And so they hit these thermal uplifts, and it just lifts them up. And they're just there, and it just lifts them up. And you get up high, and they can soar around for so long, and then they hit another thermal uplift, and up they go. And they don't even have to have to flap their wings while they're drawing power from the sun. And that's an analogy and an illustration that if we tap into God's power spiritually, we can always be rejuvenated. We can always renew the inner man and always call upon God to give us strength and power of those that serve the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is an interesting point here. You are priests forever. Well, you look in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, and at length the Hebrew writer talks about the, uh, the continual nature of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, in contrast to the high priesthood under, under Moses, under the Levitical priesthood. In uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21 and following, <clears throat> it says, For those priests were made without an oath, but this, that is, talking about Jesus and his high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, but this with an oath by him, and said unto him, The Lord has uh, the Lord swear, and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Quotation of Psalm 110. By so much uh, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant, a better testament. And they truly were priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Well, what happened to the Old Testament priests? Well, they would live and they'd serve and, well, they'd die. Well, we'd have to get another. And that one lived for so long, bam, he died. Well, they get another. Well, Jesus, well, it's not like that. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. I mean, just think about it. The high priest of Paul the Apostle is our high priest today in 2019. Paul prayed in the name and by the authority of Jesus Christ 
Aquila and Priscilla, they prayed in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. They came through the high priest, Jesus Christ. We come through the same high priest. Almost 2,000 years, we still have the same high priest as they did in the first century. It says, Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heaven, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for their own sins and then for the people's. Uh, For this he did once, that is one time for all time, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which uh, was since the law uh, maketh the son who is is consecrated forevermore. He's a priest forever. He's still serving. After the order of Melchizedek. And that's what Psalm 110 says. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know what's interesting about that? You know how many verses in the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be after the order of Melchizedek? One. Psalm 110. That's it. One single solitary verse in the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But that's all you need. You can have two. You can have three. You can have ten. But one. When God says something one time, well, that's sufficient. And God said only one time, and it is quoted several times in the book of Hebrews, that he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but that is sufficient. And any topic you want to talk about, all you need is one verse. If you have two verses, fine. If you have three, that's fine. But if you have one, that's all you need. How many verses do we have about partaking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Just one. Acts 20, verse 7. That's it. Just one verse gives us the, the, the Lord's Supper of when we're to do it on the first day of the week. You don't find it in any other passage. It talks about the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, Luke chapter 22, Mark chapter 14. But only one passage, one verse. But that's all you need. You don't have to have ten verses. Ten verses are okay, but one is sufficient. It was sufficient to show that Jesus would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek because of Psalm 110. And it is well established and quoted several times in the book of Hebrews to show that he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Look there in chapter 5 and verse 6. As he saith in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4 being quoted. Verse 10, God called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to look at another verse here in a moment. That talks about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, Zechariah chapter 6, but only one that talks about his priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, that's Psalm 110. And you can go into chapter 7, and it talks at length and argues the fact of how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham, who happened to be the great, 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 you know, all the way down to the Levitical priesthood, and so therefore, priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek is greater, greater than the Levitical priesthood. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when you talk about Jesus, he's priest. He's king, he's Lord, and he is prophet. That's the significance of Christ, or Messiah. When we talk about messianic, messianic, that is, he's the Messiah. Messiah is just simply the Hebrew term for the anointed one. Christ is the Greek term meaning the anointed one. And there were three classes of people that were anointed in the Old Testament to serve in a particular capacity. There were kings that were anointed. They were anointed with oil. You had priests were anointed. That is a, 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 consecra- a consecration or dedication to, 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 to begin this office, the work of being a priest or being a king or to be a prophet. 
And when we talk about Jesus Christ, it's not like talking about Luke Hale, like Hale is like, you know, like a last name, and Christ is sort of like Jesus' last name. No. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. And that's very rich in meaning as you study the Scriptures. And He serves in all three capacities. And we are blessed in all three capacities that Jesus serves. In the book of Zechariah chapter 6. In Zechariah chapter 6, it says, verse 12, And speak unto him, saying, Thus saith, uh, thus saith, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. That's significant because the royal lineage, wham, was whacked off. As you read in Jeremiah chapter 22. Not all trees, but some trees, when you whack them off, you cut them down, there'll be a sprout, a new branch will just come up. Well, that's the imagery. That the royal lineage was cut off there in the uh, uh, there in Jeremiah chapter twenty-two, uh, Jeconiah he was like the last, and bam, like okay, that was it. The royal lineage, the family tree was cut off, but it would sprout out again in Jesus ultimately. So he's called the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. And we're part of that temple because we're members of his body, and the body is the temple. And he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. And that's very significant, because our premillennial friends, they try to say, well, Jesus is going to be a king, but because the Jews rejected him, they, the, the prophetic clock sort of stopped, and well, that's maybe soon to happen, that Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and then he's going to be king here upon the earth for a thousand years. Well, the problem with that is, just not so. We know that because he would be priest upon his king. Or he would be a priest upon his throne. Throne signifies kingship. If he's not king now, well, he's not priest now. Now, if he's not priest, well, what about our forgiveness? Because forgiveness is tied in with the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. You see, there, there's, there, there's just horrible implications there. Well, Jesus is not king now. Well, if he's not king now, he's not priest. Because Zechariah said he would be, uh, he would be a priest upon his throne. So he serves in both capacities. Actually, three capacities, because Acts chapter 3 talks about that he would be prophet. Now, what is a prophet? Well, a prophet is one who speaks for God. And there in uh, Acts chapter 3, Peter quotes the prophecy of Deuteronomy chapter 18. And he says there in verse 22, Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me. He, uh, Him shall ye hear in all things, whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. That is, they're going to receive a rod of his strength. That is, judgment of those that reject Jesus. You see, the Bible just all, it just all weaves together. I mean, it's just incredible, the, the great wisdom of God, the great plan of God, that Jesus would come and he would be our high priest to offer sacrifice. And he would be our king, our Lord, that we could follow him in all things, that he would be absolute monarch and sovereign. And he's a prophet because when he talks, we need to be listening because he knows what he's talking about and he gives us the words of eternal life. It's kind of like there in John 6 when many disciples turn and walk no more. Jesus turned as well. Well, what about you? You, you also going to go? And Peter speaks up, speaks up and says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and sure, we believe and are sure that thou art thy Christ, the Son of the living God. 
You see, he's God's prophet. He's the one that speaks for God. And so we better always be listening to Jesus. And that's why we're always opening our Bibles. We study this book. This is our book. This is our textbook. This is our manual. This is our roadmap. This is our guide to get from earth and get out of corruption and get into the beauty of holiness and to serve the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's all contained right here. That's why we're always talking about it. We're always preaching from it. We're always encouraging people to believe it and accept it. It all just makes perfect sense. When you see the great plan of God, of God's Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer. Well, you're looking out there at Pentecost. This Psalm 110 was quoted. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made the same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. They cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, they heard the message. They were told to believe with all your heart. Told to repent and be baptized. Implied, they made the confession, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And they were baptized into Christ. About 3,000 souls. For me, that means 3,000 reasons why we need to obey the gospel. Sounds like a lot of people, and, and it is, but in the day of Pentecost, there may be like a million people or more there in Jerusalem. Only 3,000 obey. But they saw that this is it. This is Jesus, he's the Savior, he's the Redeemer. I mean, you'd be, be, be dumb, just... A total, total, total uh, uh, bad choice, bad decision to reject. So 3,000 obeyed the gospel. And they were rejoicing and happy. Why? Because they were obeyed the gospel and they received the blessings of salvation. And we're told to grow and be faithful just like the disciples there in Acts 2. And they, they who? The, the, the ones that were baptized. And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking the bread and in prayers. And if we do err, we've got an example of coming back. Well, we're going to sing the song, Jesus is the Messiah, He is King, He is Lord, He is the great high priest, He is the prophet. And what is He waiting on? People who will willingly, see, God's people will be willing. We have to willingly say, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus. If that's your decision and we can help you in any way, we'll be glad to, to assist you in any way to obey the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. Won't you come and let us know while together as we stand and as we sing.